hello, hello. I'm Dave Burse. I'm the host of this podcast and founder of inspiration company Additive. This is an Assorted Nuts special edition podcast, and in this episode, I'm talking to Steve Henry, and you can hopefully see Julian Hanford's portrait of him on your screen right now. If you click on the link on it, you'll be able to see a bigger version that does it more justice. Steve did some of the work that drew me into the advertising industry in the late 80s and early 90s. He was a creative director that everyone wanted to work for when I was starting out. So as creative director of HHCL, he brought us great work for likes of Maxell, Tango, Pot Noodle, and the agency was voted Campaign's Agency of the Decade in 2000. He can make a small fortune hawking all the awards that he's won on eBay, and he writes a well-followed blog in Brand Republic. Now he's taken a sideways shimmy from the industry to start up Decoded, which is a brilliant digital training company that teaches people how to code in a day, even if they've never seen code before in their life. It truly is brilliant. He's one of life's lovely, lovely people, and this interview took place in my living room after a spot of lunch. So, here is the super talented and visionary Mr. Steve Henry. At long last, I've managed to get an interview with Steve Henry. Uh, we're sitting in my living room uh, with cups of green tea. Uh, hi, Steve. Hello, Dave. It's great. Uh, pleasure to be here. <laughs> what a lovely space. It's great. Now, you're obviously famous for HHCL with your, your name above the door. Everyone's dream in advertising. Um, what did you do before HHCL? Uh, well, I guess really I was... Uh, Axel Chaldicott and I were the first team hired by Dave Trott at GGT, his agency, and uh, that that was fascinating because, I mean, you know Dave Trott. I mean, Dave is just one of the great radical thinkers. And I mean, I'd studied English at Oxford, and had I gone into an agency like Abbott Mead Vickers with David Abbott or Tony Brignall at CDP or something... I would have, get, would have got drawn into that tradition of writing long copy and all that, which I, and, I, and I love writing, adore writing. But the, the wonderful thing about going and working for Dave Trott was Dave hated all that. I mean, Dave's view of the best bit of body copy ever was uh, 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 an ad with no body copy. I mean, Dave hated body copy, hated universities, hated higher education. Um, <clears throat> so all the things that I'd spent the last three or four years doing uh, was worthless in Dave's, Dave's, <laughs> Dave's head, which was great because it gave me the chance to evaluate and reevaluate and play around and challenge and look at stuff. And GGT at that stage, which is sort of early 80s, was, you know, the the sexiest agency in London. It was brilliant. And, uh, you know, Dave was producing extraordinary work that was very provocative, very radical. And that essentially gave me a sense not only of of kind of the fun within advertising, but also the real buzz in being, a, you know, a challenger and a challenging brand and looking at the status quo and then deciding to go the opposite direction from that. So I did that for four years, then did a couple of years at uh, WCRS, working with Andrew Cracknell, who again was a great guy to work with, very inspiring, very provocative, and then set up HHL. So actually I set up HHL, co-founded it, about after only about six or seven years in the industry. And um, I remember when we did it, we were criticised for being very young. Uh, to set up an agency and we say well that's a problem that's going to gradually go away so <laughs> you know we ignored that criticism and just got on with it yeah 
Now, it was certainly when I was starting in the industry, it was the, the early 90s and HHCL was still quite fresh. And uh, it, it was the agency that everyone, uh, all the creatives wanted to go to because uh, you were doing work that was provocative, you were doing work that was genuinely unlike anything that anyone else was doing. How, how did you manage to to do that? How did you manage to build a, a company that, that was so, I suppose in many ways it was unadvertising? Well, I think, I think the, the main driving force of that really was the L in HHL, who was Adam Lurie. So, as I say, my, you know, I spent four years with Dave Trott, so I had a kind of a love of, of perversity and oddness and challenging and going the opposite direction in any way. But uh, Adam really, really you know, understood that and got it and was able to essentially sort of wrap it up and package it, I suppose. I mean, there's, there's got to be a better way of saying it than that. But Adam's Adam was was one of these mavericks who just is not happy unless the idea you're discussing is completely fresh. Just, I mean, like, he, unless he's feeling uncomfortable about the idea, he's not happy. And that was so liberating and so enjoyable um, to do that. So, I mean, I that's instinctively what I enjoy. But I guess because Adam Adam had come out of BMP, very high level, very highly respected planner. So he was able essentially to rationalise, I think that's the word I'm looking for, uh, this this desire to do work that was different and to rationalise it in a way that clients understood the value of it. Um, <clears throat> so it's interesting because you, you're talking about the early nights. I mean, we, we think we set it up end of 87. And for two or three years, nobody wanted to work with us at all. I mean, we really were in the wilderness. And actually, that was incredibly valuable. So when we launched, I think we thought, you know, we'd all got reasonably good reputations in the industry. We're just going to, you know, let's just do another interesting agency. And then Adam's influence was one in which he was saying, no, you know, let's not do what everybody else is doing. Let's do it differently. Let's always search for new ways of expressing ourselves, new way, new, new, new forms of creativity. And as I say, for two or three years, we were kind of really ridiculed in the advertising industry. So every time we'd do some work, it would appear in Campaign's Private View and we would get slagged off and we didn't get any, didn't get close to any creative awards. I mean, we really were out in the wilderness. And that was a fantastically valuable thing to, to do because it taught us that you don't need peer approval, that if you do what you believe in, that's the most important thing. And if you do something thinking, oh, I wonder what John Hegarty would think about this or I wonder what uh, David Abbott would think about it. It holds you back, in my view. I mean, the great thing is, is to find your voice, to find the thing that drives you and to be passionate to that and just to be true to that. Let's see, so we had two or three years of Out in the Wilderness. Then one piece of work we did for Maxell Tapes, we... We'd given up entering anything for awards because we, it was a waste of money. We didn't get anything. But the production company had entered it for Cannes and <clears throat> it won the Grand Prix at Cannes. So we kind of went from, from no, not getting any awards at all to people saying, this is the best ad in the world this year. And uh, that was really interesting because I remember actually it was reviewed in private view before it got... It, before it got entered for can, and it got slagged off. I won't say by who. I could tell you by who, but I'll, I'll preserve their. I'll, I'll protect their their reputation. Tell me afterwards. I'll tell you afterwards. But they slagged it off because that was the 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 modus operandi at the time. Was anything HHL did was barking mad and stupid, and what were they 
doing and they were just laughing just kids mucking about and um so it got slagged off and then yeah, somehow it just tapped into the right vein or nerve at can and just went all the way through to winning the grand prix and can got in touch with us on the friday and said uh you know you should send someone down uh to pick up this award you've won the grand prix and uh Three of the four partners were going to Lords that weekend. We were going to the cricket. Oh, Axel, not Lords. Not Lords. <laughs> well, Lords would have been closer to <laughs> geographically, but we actually went to Lords, and um, Axel didn't because he wasn't into cricket. But the other partners went to. We, we had tickets to Lords, so we said, well, "Actually, we're going to go to Lords." And the creative team who did it, which is Narish Ramchandani and Tim Ashton, Narish wasn't interested in going, and Tim said. Eventually, after persuasion, I'll, I'll go. I'll, you know, I'll find someone, you know, kip on someone's floor, I'll jump on a flight, go down. So he went down and picked it up. But um, our lack of interest in it um, was interesting, I think. We, 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 we just decided that actually we weren't interested. It didn't matter. If, if stuff won awards, fine. But we weren't going to lose any sleep about it. We weren't going to worry about it. And I've kept that ever since. I mean, I don't, you know, I wouldn't give, you know, when I'm judging teams' work, if somebody says, oh, look, this won the, you know, silver thing at Euro Best, I, it doesn't mean anything to me whatsoever. So what? So a group of people sitting in a room somewhere uh, who are arguing about something, you know, have, 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 have given it something or not. It doesn't matter. Um, so, but the, the advantage for us, I think, in that Maxell Tapes thing was that it did, it got us back into the fold, you know, and people in the industry went, oh, hang on, wait a minute, maybe these guys are good rather than being awful. And then it, it did become a place where people wanted to work. But for the first two or three years, we couldn't. We had to hire people who didn't want to work anywhere else, where no one else would take them, you know, the Flotsam and Jetsam, because we had, a, we had a terrible reputation in the first two or three years. People thought we were rubbish. <laughs> so one of the things that was different, I, I love this story of, uh, of how you used to do planning. Um, could, could you tell us more about the, the, sort of the researching of the work? Well, I think the, the, the fundamental approach we'd take at HHL, we'd, we'd sit down with the client and we'd say, look, so say, say you're in the, the beer market or uh, the, you know, whatever market, the water. Let's look at that marketplace. Let's establish what are the rules that everybody is subconsciously following in that marketplace. And, and it's terrifying when you do that because you find how extraordinarily similar homogeneous, you know, the, 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 the work is in any sector. And it's actually very liberating and, and, and interesting to cover a wall with the work being produced in, a, in the marketplace at that time because you get a real sense of how everybody, the work all looks exactly the same or very, very similar. And so our start point with clients with let's do that, then we go out of that, we'd evolve what are the rules of this marketplace? So if you're in the financial marketplace, the rules would be we've got to be big and we've got to be friendly. And do you see what I mean? So you'd evolve what are the rules that people have decided along the way through the, the decades that, that this is what bank advertising looks like or small car advertising looks like or beer advertising looks like. And we'd say, well, we're not going to do that because if you do that, you, you're wasting your money. It's just going to be invisible wallpaper. <clears throat> and I think that's still, to this day, the problem with the marketing industry. That it, that it consistently does that, that it, it goes to where it goes to where what everybody else is doing, and wastes its money by doing that. So we said, right, we're not going to do that, and we're going to develop work that breaks those rules, and we're going to show you that work, and you're going to feel uncomfortable when we show it to you because it isn't going to be stuff that you're used to seeing in this sector. 
and <clears throat> that was very interesting and clients were very interested in that um, but then it was like you know I'd be sitting there and I'd say right so I've got instincts about which of those three ideas I think are the, is the most interesting <clears throat> most powerful and you've got instincts about it and who's right and who's wrong and rather than get into an argument about that we evolved uh, a, a method of using research because as I said Adam had come out of BMP where research was um, research had been used by BMP essentially to sell difficult work to clients by saying you know you might find it difficult but look here's the result from research actually people quite get into it now that was fine except that um, I mean most research is the worst thing you can possibly do it just drags you back to the status quo so if you if you go out and show people something new they'll think they're being helpful by trying to make it look like all the other marketing in that sector do you see what I mean they think that's why you're giving them 30 quid and a glass of wine is oh I, you know you've gone wrong there I mean I always used to say with you know Cadbury Gorilla that if they'd taken that out to research what would have happened in research is people would have said it's not a bad idea there but you've just there's there's only two things you've got wrong with it which is you've got a, a, a monkey there and it should actually be like an attractive uh, 30 year old woman and instead of playing the drums she should be sitting on a sofa eating a bar of chocolate and if you did that you'd have a great ad because that's what all the galaxy ads look like so that's what happens in research is is people try and box you back in to the, the box you that as a credit person you're trying to get out of so we said okay we're going to use research to help us make decisions about because essentially it's about breaking the rules, but what's the right rules to break? Breaking the rules, but making sure that you are going to still emotionally connect with the audience you, you're talking to. <clears throat> and what that meant was was developing a new style of research. And for us, that meant that the planners, our planners did the research. We didn't trust outside research companies to do it. And they would be trained in it, and it would be about the interpretation of that research. But we'd use criteria like which are the ideas people talk about the most. Now, they might not say they like it, but which one are, are they talking about the most? Particularly, I was always interested in which idea are they talking about when they're leaving the room, because that's the one that's kind of got past their defences. That's the one that's, 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 that's playing around. But equally, a lot of t it was about... The, the people, that, what, what are they called, the moderators, that, so there are planners who are moderating the groups, filtering it and saying, you know, probably six of the people in that group on, are, are out of eight are, are, are not going to be helpful at all. You're trying to find who are the opinion formers within that group, who are the people, the radical people, because, they're, they're, you know, it's the tipping point, that, which I think is a brilliant, one of the few great books about marketing, the tipping point recognizing that within any sector you're looking for the opinion formers it doesn't the if you ask for the opinions of the great majority of people they're not engaged enough or interested enough to be able to help you to move the game forward so you're looking to find the opinion forms so one way of saying it is we do this research and then ignore vast swathes of it do you know what I mean we just ignore it because we find we we'd say these are essentially not opinion formers within the constraints of a research group, what they're saying is not only not helpful, it's almost exactly the opposite of what we need. So it, it became a, a very interesting part of the process. And clients, by and large, would go with us on it. You know, so we'd all go along, we'd listen in, and we'd say, look, you know, those are the interesting people. So those two people sitting over there are actually the opinion formers. Let's, let's hear what they've, they've got to say. And then it'd be, you know, what, you know, that might be an idea that they're talking about a lot. They don't say they like it, but something's happened. They've, it's got past their defences. So 
it was a very kind of subjective interpretation of the research but it had an element of science to it because we were going out and talking to other people i mean see i think the i think that's the way that marketing should be developed these days but without groups at all i think these days it's about saying exactly that early process which is let's look at the rules in the marketplace let's consciously develop work that breaks those rules then let's go out let's develop minimum viable products let's prototype stuff and put it out and try it on your facebook page or do it in banners because the interesting thing about the internet is it gives you metrics now metrics it's like metrics are like research in a sense so they're difficult if they're used badly they're appalling right and they're very unhelpful for creativity so i was talking to richard curtis once and he was saying that Blackadder. No way would Blackadder have been commissioned for a second series if the commissioning process that happened now had been happening back then, because they weren't getting the viewing figures. But there were commissioning editors at the time who just believed in it and thought it's interesting. But having said that, so metrics can be the, a, a real enemy of creativity, but having said that, if you're in a situation where you're saying to a client, look, trust me, I think this is a great idea, uh, that's difficult and sometimes you're going to get clients who can do that but usually these days marketing is so important within client organizations it doesn't matter how bright or brave or visionary your marketing director client is they've got a board who need to buy the work in order for the board to buy the work they probably need to see some standard research all that stuff which kills it stone dead i think which is why my view 95 percent of the work produced is vanilla wallpaper crap it's just a complete and utter waste of money so uh, the way one of the ways through i think is to is to develop work that breaks the rules and then to use the metrics that the internet allow, now allows us to use to test stuff to put it into beta to, to create minimum viable products put it out and just see what kind of stuff you know is that generating buzz so that was actually, I was working at Albion uh, on the, the latest iteration of the GIFGAF campaign. And so there was this barking mad idea that uh, had Keith Orville and, um, no, Keith Harris and Orville right. uh, <laughs> selling this because the, the philosophy behind GIFGAF is uh, uh, unlock your phone. We got to the analogy of unlocking battery chickens. Then it was like, well, we're, how, what's a really interesting way of doing that, a bizarre way of doing that? Keith Harris and Orville. I mean, Orville isn't even a chicken, he's a duck, right? <laughs> so there's so many things that are wrong, in inverted commas, about that idea, that in a conventional way of um, evolving work, it wouldn't have stood a chance. But in a way where you take ideas and you uh, prototype them and you, and you just try them, you just push them out there on the internet and just see... And if they're not working, you can pull them out, you can just drop them. But where you see the heat, where you see the buzz, where you see the energy, you put more energy in and you develop it. That's the model that I think is really, really interesting going forward, which is better than any research could be, Yeah, I think. It's, it's, it's almost uh, learning from the entrepreneurs, this release early, iterate often. Yeah, yeah, and fail often. And just, yeah, get out there and try it. Because, I mean, great. Great creativity is always uncomfortable, in my view. You know, th th there's a myth that too many people believe that, that it would, you're going to be sitting around in a room or presenting stuff and everyone's going to go, oh, yeah, what a brilliant idea. Great, fantastic. That'll do it. That'll solve all our problems. Tick, 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 tick. It never, ever works like that. The most interesting work is always 
wrong in some way it's always uncomfortable it's always difficult mm. and in fact that's what makes it great mm. i mean i i give talks sometimes where i go through i mean i would say to people give me any of any great idea you love and i'll kill it for you i'll kill it for you in a minute i'll tell you what shouldn't run yeah <laughs> and it's terribly easy using plausible rational arguments of the yeah. kind that we hear every day they happen in every meeting so right now as you and i are talking there are I don't know, 80, 100 meetings going on in London right now where that's going on, where actually great ideas are being killed. That's, that is the thing that offends me mm. and makes me passionate and makes me angry, actually, because my experience of working in the industry is it's, it's got a phenomenal amount of creative talent. I mean, a really phenomenal amount of creative talent. So a couple of years ago, or a few years ago, I, got, I was working at TBWA, not very happy with the way things were going there. And so I said, I need to take some time out. I'm going to just take some time out. And I wanted to take time out of the industry generally, not just one agency, but just... So I was developing other things. I was working a bit in publishing, working a bit in TV. And those are interesting industries. But I missed the quality of intelligence in advertising. The quality of intelligence and creativity in advertising is extraordinary. And yet, the work that this industry produces is i think i mean a, a criminal waste of money so i mean one of the statistics i bandy around is you know what's the return on investment on marketing in this country now someone gave me a figure a few years ago and said i couldn't quote it um so i quote it every, everywhere i can because because <laughs> to me it's a provocative quote. so apparently the return on investment on conventional marketing in this country is 56 pence in the pound i.e we lose half our clients money every year yeah it just disappears right now google apparently were going around last year with presentations to agencies saying uh, a different figure they had a lower figure 49 pence in the pound right as a return on investment for conventional marketing so the point about that is that's a financial scandal that's worse than any of the banks financial scandal i mean that that's a horrific financial scandal i mean the, the you know if you're a shareholder in those companies you'd be right you, you know you say wait a minute um it's not just that old you know lord leave hume thing that half the money i put into advertising doesn't work the money that is put into advertising loses half its clients budget every year now you may or may not believe that figure and that figure may or may not be true but if you look at what happens in our industry every you know on average accounts move every three years on average marketing directors last two years it's obvious that this isn't working this model just i mean i mean if it was working uh, accounts would stay longer clients would stay in their jobs longer you know it, it there would be far greater sense of stability security knowledge confidence in what we were doing but it is it's like the wild west and again if you want to know kind of how bad it is i would suggest to people you know just go back three years and dig out some old copies of campaign and you will see so all the bits of new business there that people are going hey we've just won this look where that is now because almost certainly it will be reviewing or in trouble or whatever yeah look at all the campaigns that people are announcing the new campaign this is going to change the face of you know bottled water advertising okay well how many of those campaigns that, that were announced are still in our consciousness three years later minuscule amount absolutely minuscule amount. it's a it's a it's an incredibly wasteful industry but the creative potential is massive 
And actually, every conversation I have with clients, that's what they want. What they, they'll tell you that they can do virtually everything else in-house. They can bring most of the thinking in-house, most of the planning in-house. They can bring an awful lot of that in-house. The bit that they're looking for is lateral thinking, is creativity. Um, that's what they want agencies to bring. I think agencies have completely forgotten how to value that and how to sell it. So again, you know, as as we're talking, there are meetings happening all over London. What's happening in most of those meetings, those those, those work presentation meetings? What's happening is the agency's turning up and saying, <clears throat> here's four ideas. They're putting them up, sticking them up on the wall, or they're showing them in the presentation. And <clears throat> they're hoping that the client buys the best idea, right? So there's no process. There's no... Um, education is probably too strong a word, but there's no... There's no guidance as to what, how, how should one buy great creative work? What are we looking for? So, you know, the value of creative directors has diminished and diminished. So it used to be the creative directors were these huge rock star gods, yeah? And that brought with it some abuse and some, you know, some, some uh, lazy thinking and all the rest of it. But essentially, there is a massive value in creative directors <clears throat> because they are their currency is is ideas they're seeing ideas the whole time they're judging ideas the whole time they're aware of ideas the whole time so you develop a a, a sense a gut instinct for for ha you know because you the sweet spot you're looking for is an idea that isn't like what anybody's done before but it's going to emotionally connect with the audience you're talking to so it's got to have that kind of oh where did that come from? Can we do it? Element to it, that kind of scary bit. But it's also got to have a sense of connection. It's got to connect to the emotional promise of the brand. It's got to connect with your understanding of the, of the, of the audience you're communicating to. And that's a skill. And, uh, you know, I think it's a tragedy that, that agencies haven't really grasped that. I think that's the role of agencies. Mm. But agencies these days are run by... Um, the money people, yeah. by financial micromanagers, which is the worst possible thing, and it's not what's needed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I often get frustrated with was when you you worked with account people who outcliented the client, and, and were the ones who were sort of saying, "Well, the client will say this. The client won't <laughs> like it because of that," and your idea dies before it even leaves the well, agency. Well, funny enough, I I couldn't agree with you more, but I actually think that. <sighs> I think the thing that's missing in agencies is a process, right? Now, normally creative people... So I've talked about metrics and I've talked about research. I'm also going to talk about process. Now, each of those three things, to a pure creative person, that's the enemy, yeah? It's, it's all instinct, it's all flair, it's all madness, it's all... Right? Now, I obviously, I love all that flair, madness stuff. I mean, I think that's, that's, you know... I wouldn't want to be in any other part of the industry, the credit bit. But you need, you know, we're, it's a commercial art form, this. And therefore, we need a sense of metrics. We need a sense of, well, I think, you know, metrics is a better way of doing it than research. But process. Now, the, da the danger is unless an agency has process, the client process will win. And client processes are geared around um, covering their arse. Right, which I, I think is a waste of time. I mean, I, 
I, I don't think the risk exists of great work massively damaging a brand, but that's the paranoia that clients have. So their processes are, are designed to avoid oh, massive disasters, they, you know, which I, I think is nearly always the wrong kind of process. The process you need is a process which is the opposite of that, which is saying it's more or less impossible to damage brands badly. But what the big damage you do to a brand is by being invisible. Therefore, what we need to do is we need to find the outstanding, we need to find the spike, we need to find what's going to stand out. Now, those processes, so HHCL had a process like that, which I was talking about earlier. TBWA has the disruption process, which is when it's adhered to, is spectacularly successful. Um, so those processes, I think, are what agencies need. I think agencies need to say, we are in the business of producing outstanding ideas. And to do that, it's like a factory. You need a process. You need to refine that process of how do you get that out. And one of the things, it's a long way around picking up on the point you were making, but one of the things I used to do at HHCL was what I would call a pre-presentation meeting. So we would have got to three or four ideas we wanted to share with the client. I would then call in the account director and the planner and I would say, right, let's run through how this might play with the client. And so what you were saying, I would encourage the account director to say that. So I would say, what's the what's the wor- what's going to worry the client about this? What what do you think? Put your mind in, in you know, your head in the mind of the client. What's going to worry them? What's going to be scary? What's going to be difficult? And we would rehearse it. We'd go through it all because I'm not in the business of being awkward for the sake of being awkward. I'm in the business of creating work that stands out because that's the best use of a client's money. Do you see what I mean? So I'd want to hear what those concerns might be so that we could think about them, prepare answers, even just be aware of them, even just to say to a client, yeah, we're we're aware of that as an issue. We've been thinking about it. And then that's where, where we'd go, right, now let's go to research and check it out. And where these days I would say, right, we're aware of that as an issue. Let's develop a minimum viable product, put it out, and let's see whether that issue is, a, is the right one or not. So that, I actually think, although that double-guessing of clients is enormously annoying for creative people, I think if you, if you as a creative director can, 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 can run the meeting and say, right, I want to hear what the client concerns are going to be, it is. I think. If you, I actually think if you don't do that, you, it's like walking into an ambush every time. Do you know, you're sending people off to a meeting where it's like the First World War. They're going to go over the top and they're just going to get mown down and they're going to come back. Well, not you know the First World War. They didn't come back, but they're going to come back. You know, um, saying yeah, no, not a very good meeting. I mean, what's happening in all these meetings in, around London, as you and I have have our green tea, is four ideas are being presented to clients. Uh, the more interesting ideas are being blown out because they are they're too uh, out they're, they're too out there. The client is going for the, the the one that fits closest to the template of work in that sector, yeah. and then the killer is the client is saying that's the best idea, but it's a bit dull, right? Can you do something a bit more interesting? And then the people are going back to the agency and they're talking to creators who are going well. We did some more interesting stuff, but they blew it out. Yeah, do you see? So that the process of understanding how you buy stuff that doesn't look anything like the stuff you think you want to buy is what agencies, where agencies should be focusing. And to me, to to have a rehearsal of those concerns and questions and issues is enormously valuable. So now you've taken a bit of a, a break from 
being a, an everyday creative director in an agency, and you've got Decoded. Can you tell us a bit about Decoded and, and why you decided to start it up? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing to say is I'm not a techie. I mean, I'm actually not a practical person at all. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, like things like DIY, um, I'm just hopeless at all that. Do you know what I mean? And um, I'm a kind of thinker, do you see what I mean? And I'm not very good at making stuff. But I was working at Albion, which is a really great agency, and uh, there was a creative guy up there called John Plackett, and John had um, made something called... We had this idea, which was some of... You know, the, it's called the Slapometer, and it was for the election debates. And, and the, basically there were figures of... There were, there were figures of Brown, Cameron and Clegg. And uh, this was a website, and you could slap the, the, the figures with the back of this big hand, this giant hand, if you didn't like what they were saying. Mm. And it was enormously uh, tactile and engaging and fun. And I, and I knew when John was talking about this idea that if he'd, just, if he'd done the normal creative thing of saying, I've just had this idea, um, that probably nothing would have happened. People would have gone, yeah, 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 good, yeah, nice idea, maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But the difference was that John could write code and John had made it. And, you know, so Jason, who runs Albion, was playing with it. Nick Darkin, who was the creative director, was playing with it. And, and I saw it and I was playing with it. And we were all like, God, this is fantastic. <clears throat> and I realised that that it, it just gave you an enormous advantage. I mean, you know, if, if I think the, dyna the dynamic of our industry is a massive number of great ideas that are being generated. So every pitch I've ever worked on, there's always been great ideas, but how many ideas actually get through to being made, to being sold, and then being made minuscule proportion? I mean, it's just a, a, a massive massacre of the innocence that's happening, right? It's just disastrous. And what <clears throat> what I saw in John Plackett was someone who was really raising the odds in their favour by by being able to make stuff. So Mark Zuckerberg says something similar. Uh, you know, the day of the IPO for Facebook, he sent an email to everyone in the, in, in, in the company, in Facebook, and said, we're a creative company. He said, I, I want people to come up with ideas. He said, but when you go into a meeting with an idea, he said, don't go with it in your head or on a bit of paper. Make it, prototype it. He said, and he said, code wins arguments, right? Now, so <clears throat> at that point, you know, what I was talking about was way before the Facebook IPO. But that thinking was what was in my head, which was like, actually the most valuable thing the industry could do would be to learn how to use this tool, these building blocks. Because code, code is basically instructions to a computer. Mm. And, <clears throat> but only, I say it's only that, I mean, it, it's complicated. So the, the, so the journey for me was, this would be interesting, wouldn't it? Could we teach people code, was my start point. And my focus was creative people initially. Started having conversations with people, got a team around me, three other people, brilliant people, um, Catherine Parsons, Richard Peters, Alistair Blackwell, brilliant, brilliant people. So Richard and Ali sat down for eight months and worked on, could we, you know, how could you teach people the basics of code in one day? And they worked it out. And it took them eight months and is a 200 point script that we take people through. So there's 10, you know, the course is 10 people, two trainers, one day, we assume zero knowledge at the beginning, Nobody gets left behind. Everybody at the end of the day has created a multi-platform app with geolocation. But crucially in that process, you've learned the languages. You've learned how this thing works. You've learned the building blocks. 
So for me, the analogy was sort of like, <clears throat> when I first got into the industry, Dave Trott took me along to a shoot and said, you know, that's a camera. And I go, yeah, yeah, no, I think I know that, Dave. And then he go, right, yeah, but that's, those are the lights. That's a 4K, right? And that's a brute and that's a blonde and that's a whatever, yeah? And you learnt about it. And then you learnt about editing and you learnt these things. And whether you were going to go on and direct or not was irrelevant. It was like just learning how stuff was put together in the lead medium you were going to use. And obviously, you start thinking about the internet. I mean, there's not, there could not be a better commercial tool. There could not be a better creative tool. There could not be a better communications tool. We're in the business of commercial, commu you know, creative communications. Surely, we need to understand this tool. So that was that was my start point. As I say, we ended up after eight months hard work with a course, and we tried it, and people said, "Yeah, this is great. We like it." Um, so we focused it initially on creatives, and then agency people said to us. Actually, our account directors need to know about this because they're talking about work, they're presenting work. <clears throat> and our planners need to know about it. And our project managers need to know about it because they need to know what's expensive and cheap and what's easy to make and difficult to make. And you, I suddenly got an image, essentially, of, of the industry as a group, you know, meetings in which people who don't know what they're talking about are presenting stuff they don't understand to other people who don't know how it works, yeah? And we think that's normal, do you know what I mean? And that's what's going on. So to me, this was an idea that just seemed like it was bang on the, the zeitgeist and the money. And it felt like this is what actually what people needed in our industry. And the advertising industry is terrible. You know, it doesn't have any money for training. It doesn't have any attitude. It doesn't want to do training. It resists training. But this for me was a bit like, you know, a teenager saying, I want to learn to drive a car. And mum and dad saying, well, we don't have a budget for that, you know. Um, it's a life skill, you know. To me, this is absolutely crucial. Code underpins just so much of our everyday life. So, so that's where, you know, it, it, it came from. And, you know, as I say, agencies then said, right, our account directors need to do it, our planners need to do it, um, and then clients got involved. And we've done uh, workshops with Carphone Warehouse, Paddy Power, O2, BT, BBC, BBC Worldwide, Unilever have booked up three uh, workshops with us. So it's really interesting. The appetite for it is massive. Uh, I mean, the problem we still have is that in the advertising industry, um, training, you know, there's always a financial crisis in the, in the advertising industry. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world happens in the rest of the world. There's always a crisis in the, in, 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 in the advertising industry. And training's the first thing that goes. Uh, so... You know, that's the challenge. And it's really interesting. I mean, so some agencies love it and they, they keep coming back for more and more. So Ogilvy really got it and keep coming back for more and more. But BBH as well. So BBH Labs came along, loved it. Then BBH sent along their management team. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's really weird. Some agencies get it and think, God, this is fantastic. We want to do it. And other agencies <clears throat> kind of nod and go, yeah, it's a good idea. And then... We never hear back from them. But to me, it's the creative language of the future. And it's the creative language of the future, so why wouldn't you learn it? Well, you wouldn't learn it if it's going to take <clears throat> three months of your life, um, but we've got it down to a day. 
you know what I mean? And you wouldn't do it if it was going to cost you an arm and a leg, but we've got it at a reasonable price. And anyway, so this is the sales pitch, but I'm, I'm not against the sales pitch. <laughs> Decoded.co is the website. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, I, it, the, the great thing for me is the feedback we get. So we give people questionnaires beforehand and we ask them to fill in, you send in, you know, stuff, feedback to us afterwards. About half the people have done that. We always get four out of five or five out of five. We we ask people, would you recommend it? Every single person has said they recommend it. And for me, those testimonials are are brilliant to read because they're people saying, look, you know, I was finding my job really difficult. I was struggling. I was feeling anxious because I didn't understand what was going on. And now I understand it. Now I can have conversations. Now I know what's easy to do, what's difficult to do. So probably... 85% of the people who do the course are not going to go on and code. They're not going to they're not going to go on and make the prototypes. But 15% of creative people who come on it will go on and they'll make prototypes of their ideas, which is where the, the germ of the idea came from for me. 85% of people who come, they just want to understand it. They just want to be able to have conversations. They want to catch up. Um, and that that's what it is for us you know so every time we do it 10 people it's like getting 10 people to the top of the mountain and no one gets left behind that's why we've got two trainers you know mm. to make sure that the you know that everybody gets it and i hate i mean i just have a hatred a personal hatred of kind of elitism of kind of like you know you're not allowed in here you, you mm. i think all credit people are like this you know Credit people, if they see a sign, don't walk on the grass, they walk on the grass. You know, if they see a door that says, don't go in here, then they go in there, you know. So the locked door in Bluebeard's Castle is where creative, you know, creative people are just going to be there, trying to get in. And to me, anything that says, you don't understand this, this isn't for you, I distrust and dislike. So down the line, I can see decoded working for like the city do you know what I mean like oh, and the stock market why shouldn't everybody under, you know I don't see why we couldn't put together a course that that explains to people the stock market in a day because in the same way that code underpins everything money underpins everything and law or even medicine do you know what I mean like we could I mean because instead of making it this hermetically sealed secretive society that only a few people are allowed into to me, the whole point of the internet is it's the most democratising tool ever. And that's what I think, that's the potential of it. Mm. So again, that, that for me is the vision of Decoded. is like saying, actually, you know what? These people who say you can't learn this or you shouldn't learn it, screw them. Come on in. The part, you know, come join the party. Why not? Anybody can do it. Yeah. Now, obviously, I... I, I work in the, the world of training and education as well and uh, the, the one thing that I found as well is that creative departments are, are, are the worst to get involved in training yeah. and, and there doesn't seem to be much, um, much investment from the agencies around uh, creating training, uh, training creative people. Oh, sounds as if my dishwasher's done. Um, so <laughs> nice little break in the interview there. Um, so <laughs> So is, is there one of the things that as we're, as we're changing into this new world where code is becoming an important thing, for creatives, is there other things do you think that creatives need to learn? Are there other skills? Do we need to relook at creative departments? Do, the, do creative departments, the way that we've got them set up in, in this country, particularly more so than other countries in this rigid team structure, is that right for coming up with great, engaging, interactive ideas? 
Uh, such a good question, Dave, seriously. I mean, one of the great things about HHCL was it was the, the most collaborative agency in London at that time. Um, so it's a, but it's a very thorny, difficult question. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I kind of go backwards and forwards on it. I think most credit people do, in terms of thinking that there are some there there's some head there's a headset that I think typifies kind of creative certainly that I like to work with and it is it's a desire to be different it's a desire to take risk it's a desire to go out and the areas where nobody else is but that is no good unless it's plugged into uh the system and the process and and just I mean it's all very all well and good having crazy ideas but the it has to plug into collaborative working processes and particularly these days uh so to me we it's i don't i don't actually know what the answer is i think so because because i think it varies you know from case to case sometimes you get creatives creative people who are terribly obstinate and terribly difficult to work with and actually you need that sometimes do you know what I mean because some of that grit you know the story you were just telling me about you know insisting on going back and selling the same idea to the client who'd blown it out on the Friday mm -hmm. that obstinacy is enormously important right but equally uh, a, a willingness to collaborate is crucially important now it, it's one of those things where I mean this is such a cliche and I apologise for using it but you know it's, it's Scott Fitzgerald wasn't it who said you know, the sign of great intelligence is the ability to see the, the, the truth of both sides of an argument. Do you see what I mean? Mm. I mean, I think that creative people need to be difficult, obstinate, awkward, and they need to be collaborative uh, as well. Mm. And how you manage that, I don't know. And maybe that, that is where training is needed. Mm. But certainly, I think training is difficult for creative people because there's a belief that it's instinctual and that you don't want to muck around with it that it's and part of that i absolutely believe in and and you know but i, I you know i love that belief but equally there's no doubt that uh, the people who are suffering the most at the minute in our industry are creative people so if you talk to creatives you know, up to two or three years in, you know, who just out of art college and two or three years into into the business, they're nearly all tearing their hair out. They're going crazy, right? It's like the, they thought they were entering an industry that was going to, you know, celebrate craziness and, you know, radical thinking. And instead of which, it's an industry hidebound and terrified. And that's kind of... that. Getting agencies generally, you know, sometimes credit people, but also the other the, the other people in the in the agency as well, to understand the potency of creativity, to understand uh, what makes some what makes ideas wrong in the right way, um, is crucial, absolutely crucial. And I think you know, in the past we've just sort of taken it for granted and assumed that we were going to get there, but obviously transparently we're not you know we're not this is the, the as i say the tragedy for me there's tons of great ideas being produced or co coming up in uh you know in creative people's heads but those ideas are not getting made and that's the thing that where i think you know we're not we're not honoring the creative process and we're not we're not honoring actually the 
raison d'etre for this industry. I mean, advertising has no inherent right to exist. You know, I think if it exists, it's because it adds value. And, it, and I don't just mean financial value, I mean cultural value. You know, that, so the creation of content. So it was um, Christopher Bailey, wasn't it, at um, Burberry, who said recently, I thought this was wonderful, he said, uh, we're, we're, we're as much a creative content business as we are a fashion business. And that's going to be how it is in the future for all clients. It doesn't matter whether you're making trainers, <clears throat> bottled water, loo cleaner, it doesn't matter. You're in the business of making content, stuff that is going to engage your customers whether it's a website, whether it's an app, whether it's a TV programme, all those things. And that's where the advertising industry as was, I think, will evolve into the, cre- uh, the creative industry, yeah? But it, it need, in order for it to do that, it has to respect the creative process. It has to respect creative people. And, 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 and that's the bit that's fundamentally missing. So, so the future of the industry could be branded content rather than advertising messages yeah i think so i actually think so i mean advertising it as it's as a model somebody said this and i thought this was a great quote said advertising is the answer to a question nobody asked yeah. right which is like i mean you know we don't i mean like one of the things that really drives me mad about this industry is like, because people who are in the industry we're in the industry so we walk around we look at ads we look at some of the posters, we look at some of the banners, we look at stuff, right? Which we, we need to, because we're in that industry. But we think other people are. And actually, when I left TBWA 2008 and thought I was going to take a break from advertising, I joined the great mass of humanity who are not working in advertising. And I realised I didn't have to look at this stuff from a business perspective, and I didn't. And I looked at other people's people standing on tube stations, and I realised that none of them were looking at this stuff either. So the, So... People are not inherently interested in it. Um, in fact, people want to resist it. If you think about those charity muggers who grab you outside tube stations, advertising is like that, except instead of it being something that essentially could save the planet, it's someone tugging at your sleeve, uh, wanting to talk to you about dog food when you don't have a dog, or wanting to talk to you about toothpaste when actually you're not the slightest bit fucking interested in toothpaste. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? That's advertising. So. We've got to lose that model. I think that model is wrong. I think it's about going back and saying, why do brands exists, exist? Brands exist because of the emotional promise, the emotional contract that exists between a consumer and a product. And that it's about enriching and magnifying that through content. Mm. And that is a creative skill. And that's where, you know, the advertising industry, I think that's what it should evolve into. It should say exactly what you, you said. It, that that's what we're in the business of creating branded content, right? And we should be bringing in people who make TV series and people who design apps and people who design games and say, that's what we do. And we'll do that with an understanding of the dynamics of brands. Yeah. It's funny enough on... on Friday, one of the things that I'm, I'm talking about, I'm doing this, this talk on branded content, is actually, it used to be getting messages to people was really expensive. You had to buy your advertising space. So that was where your money went. Um, so you weren't actually quite so much concentrating on the quality of the content because your money was going just, to well, buying the space. People just throw money at it and think it, hope it sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but now, we've, yeah, yeah. now we've got free distribution. 
Yeah, exactly. we've, we've, we've got YouTube, yeah. we've got yeah. Facebook, we've got all that stuff, it's free distribution. Yeah. So the investment of the money now needs to be in the content in the rather than in the distribution. Exactly, in the production and in the content, yeah, exactly. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and what You see, I think that's, I agree with you, I think it's about saying to clients, let's understand the emotional promise of your brand, then let's look at the sector, look at the rules that people are following, let's develop work that challenges and breaks and stretches those rules, create minimum viable products, put them out on the internet, see where the heat is, where the buzz is. Then when you've got a sense of the sweet spot is we're breaking the rules and we're emotionally connecting with people. Yeah. Um, so Cadbury's Gorilla is a brilliant example of that. But they're, they're, you know, the, when, when the industry gets it right, it really gets it right in that sweet spot. So then it's like, okay, now let's really invest in that. To your point, let's invest in the creation of content. And, you know, but then you have to, you know, then the knowledge that the advertising industry has and needs more of, which is, you know, the, the journey the consumer goes on with the brand. Do you see what I mean? I mean, like, it's, it's again, advertising creative people get stuck in media. They get stuck in making TV or something. Whereas, you know, the packed design might be by far the most valuable place for them to focus their, their creativity. Yeah. yeah. Or it might be a TV program i mean you know, but it's it's it, that comes from an understanding of the dynamics of that brand yeah i think it's uh, probably time for us to to wrap it up now um just one question before we end um how many white t-shirts do you actually own dave you bugger <laughs> it used to be i used to be more experimental i used to wear like black t-shirts and white t-shirts <laughs> and particularly if I felt I was a bit chubby, I'd put a black T-shirt on. <laughs> uh, but if uh, these days I get to the gym a bit more often, and so I wear white T-shirt. No, I always wear white T-shirt. I, 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 I try other stuff, and then I just think it doesn't work for me as much. But it's terrible, isn't it? I am really, 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 really bad at that. And that's what I just wear. Yeah. Like, let's just say it's your brand. It's you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Steve, thank you so, so, so much for your time. That's been fantastic. Dave, it's been great. It's been great. Thank you. Ah, I love Steve to bits. And we're both so busy that it took months for us to get that together. I don't think I'd have succeeded without the lure of food. So I hope that's inspired you. And we've got four more to come. So don't be a stranger. Doodle bit. The Future of Advertising podcast is brought to you by Additive the marketing industry's most inspiring training company. Find out more about our talks, workshops and inspiration sessions at getadditive.com and get one third of your first booking by joining our mailing list. Shh!